This episode of the podcast is dedicated to Bob Lawton, founder of Funspot in New Hampshire, home to the American Classic Arcade Museum. Bob passed away recently at the age of 90 after spending seven decades in the coin-op amusement business. It, it's kind of surprising that, um, on the one hand, that, you know, the, the work that we did in the 70s and 80s still have legs. Um, it's somewhat surprising, although you could argue really the other side of the coin, and that is, look, fun is fun, and you can go out today and you can get the most, you know, super rich, visually super rich, mind-blasting uh, experience um, with modern video games, but, you know, there's there's sort of a romance and a and a... Uh, a beauty in in a simple game. Hi, I'm Rich Adam, former programmer on Missile Command and Gravatar, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Richard May, and I'm joined, as ever, by Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. And the author of Missile Commander, A Journey to the Top of an Arcade Classic, Tony Temple. Hello. Our guest for this episode is former Atari coin-op division programmer, Rich Adam. Recruited by Steve Calfee in 1978, Rich started his coin-op career as a member of a team tasked with launching Atari into the pinball business. This would eventually lead to working under the watchful eye of none other than Dave Toyer, in at the deep end as junior programmer on the seminal Missile Command. Rich went on to take the captain's chair for Atari's hard-as-nails Gravatar, arguably the pinnacle of Atari's vector game output, and the game for which he is most well known. Rich is very candid about his time at Atari, and, as you'll hear, he wasn't always plain sailing for the young programmer. So listen on for stories of stolen prototype arcade cabinets, subsonic space pens, an early raster version of The Empire Strikes Back, Richard's Jerry Maguire moment and the resultant brinkmanship, and how this initially lackadaisical 9-to-5 eventually caught what he affectionately refers to as the Atari virus. As always, thank you for listening. You can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience Podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Uh, Rich Adam, hello, and a very warm welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Um, we've obviously spoken over the last few months to a number of your contemporaries at Atari, and everyone seems to recount a unique journey uh, through the doors of the Atari coin-op division. So I, I just wonder if we could start by exploring how you got to Atari. I mean, would a good place to start be sort of high school and college? Yeah, I, I would say yes uh, to that. Um, so I... Went to high school, grew up in Palo Alto, went to Palo Alto High, and actually it had kind of a, you know, a, a pretty advanced 
um, computer system. Uh, they had like an HP 3000. And so they offered a, uh, a programming class and um, uh, it allowed you to learn basic. And um, you would type in your programs and there was a, uh, a punch tape that you would feed in once you, you know, put in your program and then you could feed it in and run it. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up <laughs> doing a blackjack program that dealt hands of blackjack and et cetera, et cetera. So um, I learned some things about programming or, or a lot of things about programming from from that to begin with. And then went to Chico, um, was a math major for a couple of years there. And, you know, Chico just wasn't doing it for me. I, for whatever reason, I, I, I did enjoy, you know, being a math major very much, but, uh, I ended up, uh, coming home and, and taking some classes at a community college. Uh, and then I saw that they were doing this work experience program where you could become a, an intern at NASA Ames Research Center, which is, you know, right in Silicon Valley. Okay. And so I applied to become an intern at NASA and they were dumb enough to pick me. <laughs> Yeah, and and you you worked on something quite extraordinary from from what I understand. Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, I was lucky enough to get uh, assigned to a, a division that part of the division was a uh, space telescope, or excuse me, not a space telescope, an airborne telescope that was in a C-141 military transport aircraft. And they had like a 13-inch telescope that had been installed onto that aircraft. And it had these really high-tech, I think probably unique in the world, air bearings that the telescope floated on to sort of adjust for um, all of the vibration, which, you know, if you have a mirror that you're collecting light uh, in doing astronomical observations, jitter is not good. So that's why they install these, you know, things on the top of mountains, um, you know, big, big telescopes. So um, it was really, you know, at the time before Hubble, it was the way that you could get you know, some of the highest resolution, you know, astronomical observations uh, around. So, and while I was there, they, one of their missions went down Australia and uh, it was the mission that discovered rings around Uranus. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of amazing, you know. So, you know, I heard them talking about it and they were, they were waiting for, it was an occultation. So when a planet passes in front of a star, um, it will wink, the star will wink out. And what they can do then is they can basically look at the spectrum absorption um, and kind of figure out exactly what elements are in the atmosphere of, of planets. So they were waiting for the star to wink out because it would be occluded and the star winked out early. And they were like, hmm. And then it came back. And then they were like, hmm. And they said, you know, if that does that on the way out, we may have discovered a ring. And so then it winked out right on time, went through the duration that was right on time expected. And then they waited and it winked out again. And so that was how they determined that, oh, there must be a ring around Uranus. I, I am feeling a whole new podcast here. <laughs> um, fascinating. So presumably that um, uh, improved your programming skills to something presumably a little bit more um, uh, serious than basic? Correct. Okay. So uh, the project, I was, again, lucky enough to get assigned to uh, my mentor was Peter Manley, 
um, who was a physicist by training. And the project that he had, one of the projects he was assigned was um, to do a telescope control system, a microprocessor-based telescope control system for a telescope at uh, on top of Mount Lemmon in um, Tucson, Arizona, 50%. Uh, interest was NASA's and the other 50% was University of Arizona. So we were working on a telescope control system. And so we were doing it on an 8080 Heathkit <laughs> microprocessor, you know, motherboard. And so I learned how to program in assembly language. And um, that is really what the, the stroke of luck mm -hmm. that got me uh, to have a skill set where I could walk into Steve Calfee and trick him into thinking that I might be able to contribute. Okay. And and um, I just wonder, while all this was going on, Rich, were, were video games sort of on your radar at this point, if you'll excuse the pun? <laughs> um, kind of amazingly, yeah. I, I really, I didn't really realize this. It was kind of singularly positioned uh to be a, a game nerd. Um, you know, I played Pong when it first came out and, you know, we were out to dinner with my grandparents and, you know, it was super cool. And, but then when I was in high school, we would, one of the hangouts that uh, we did as seniors is we would go over to the Stanford campus and go to the Stanford coffee house and they would have events. They had comedy teams or uh, comedy troops. But when I was there, there was this video game there. It was called Galaxy Game. And it was really another iteration of, um, you know, um, what the heck was Nolan's first game? Space, whatever. Oh, Space Duel. Uh, space, not Space Duel. Uh, computer Space. Computer Space, yeah. So it was another iteration of that game, but it was done on like a um, a mini computer. Uh, I can't remember. Calfee knew the name of the, which mini computer it was, but basically... Four players simultaneous. Um, you, it was, um, you know, kill or be killed. And if you sur were the only survivor, then you got to play again. So you'd play a quarter and hopefully you'd be the winner and you'd get to play three others. And so each, you know, it had like variable gravity. You could get rid of gravity. You could have negative gravity. You could like reflect at the edge of the screen. You could wrap around at the edge of the screen. You could explode at the edge of the screen. It seemed like the most high featured thing I had ever seen in my life. It was incredibly cool. And, you know, it was in 1973 or something. Mm. So Yeah, cool. And, and so you, um, you joined Atari in 1978. You you mentioned uh, Steve Calfe there, who we spoke to um, here on the podcast a uh, couple of months back. He was obviously responsible for recruiting many of Atari's great programmers. I just wondered what what you think made your um, CV stand out. Do you think your sort of work at NASA gave Atari, you know, some sort of comfort that you know, yeah, you know, this guy's into tech and and science and that kind of thing? Or, or I think or yes. Uh I mean, I think it's kind of, you know, Steve was hiring me to program pinball machines. And right. he he had developed a, a language that, you know, made it simple. It was very simple procedural, wasn't, you know, I wasn't, didn't walk in the door, start programming in assembly language. I, I was started by, you know, using Steve's, you know, uh, program to like, you know, turn gate on or turn light on, or, you know, it was very dumbed down. <laughs> and so for that reason, you know, it was a great entree for me to be an entry level person 
doing something that, you know, uh, really was more, you know, congruent with my skill set at the time. Did you see, um, did you see Atari at that point as something of a lark, <laughs> Rich, or, or was it a conscious decision to apply and sort of go down that, you know, sort of um, entertainment gaming road? Yeah, um, I found the job in the classified section of the San Jose Mercury. <laughs> so, I didn't, you know, I was looking for a job. I had applied and and interviewed at like Ford Aerospace and a number of other sort of more vanilla kinds of uh, tech jobs in those days. And um, when I started at Atari, when I decided to take the job, I walked in thinking, yeah, I'll probably do this for a couple of years and then I'll go out and get a real job, you know? I didn't really, you know, it just seemed like a good, you know, way for me to, um, you know, build my career. And I, th- in my mind, I didn't really, you know, have a long-term plan, you know, I'm like 22 years old. So, you know, I just thought oh, I'll do this for a couple of years and then, you know, probably have to go get a real job. It sounds like my career in marketing, Rich, and here I am 30 odd years later, still, still trying to figure out what my next move is. But, um <laughs> Enough about me. Uh, so, uh, uh, Rich, so you were at Atari at a relatively junior level um, doing some pretty simple programming on pinball tables. Could you, um, do you have any recollection of which tables specifically you had a hand in? Yeah, the Atari pinball repertoire wasn't huge. Mm. Um, so I worked on a, a couple of prototype early games. You know, they would, uh, you know, designers would, you know, put together layouts and then they would have, you know, proposed rule sets and, and such. And so there was one game called the King of Hearts. Mary Adkison was the designer of that game. And um, actually it was Queen of Hearts. Um, and uh, then there was another cocktail pinball called Monza that was kind of um, automobile themed. Um, and then I, th- I think I helped out uh, Norm Avalar a little bit on what was the... Um, Hercules, the the pinball, yeah, the pinball machine with a cue ball. Right. I think I had maybe a couple of lines of code in that game. Okay, interesting. And um, while all this was going on, were, were you sort of starting to eye the video game department down the hallway? Sure. I mean, we, I was in a lab, you know, there was the structure of the layout was, you know, just a series of labs, you know, linked, you know, or just right next to each other. And so the pinball lab was just one of one of those labs. And so we would go down and, you know, play each other's games, you know, while we were waiting for our listing to come back and our compile to come back and, you know, wait for our core to be programmed to slap it in. And, um, so yeah, I was actively in, involved and, and, um, you know, wanting to be, see what the latest games were and, you know, play them and have fun doing that. I will say, you know, I was, I was a very junior guy and, um, that collection of engineers was pretty, pretty exceptional. That they were some of the. It was one of the most excellent um, engineering staffs I've been a part of, and um, so, you know, um, it, it was quite intimidating for for me, just because they were all, you know, 
everybody is, you know, sort of jockish in their own realm. Mm -hmm. And so these are a bunch of math and, you know, intellectual jocks, you know, talking shop and showing their mathematical chops. And so for me, it was like, okay, I'll just sit over here in the corner and, you know, pretend like I'm smart too. Fake it till you make it, right? Yeah. So, so, um, so how did the rolling coin op come about? Was it as a result of the pinball division closing down or, yeah, I, I, or were you just shunted over? Yeah, no, I think it was, uh, they, they kind of shut down. They couldn't really make it work. They couldn't really make a reliable, uh, I think their machines weren't as reliable. I think there's a lot of mechanical magic that pinball machines had, uh, done over the years. And a lot of the stuff was, all the stuff was done out of Chicago and all this, you know, talent was out of Chicago. And I think Atari tried to do something that had evolved, um, over time. And they, I don't think they had really refined all of the, uh, it's multidisciplinary. It wasn't just electronics. It was electromechanical. It was mechanical. So I just don't think they had gotten all of that perfected. And so they sh ended up shutting it down. And so then, you know, uh, Calfee, I'm sure was going, you know, and he and Lyle were probably going, what are we going to do with this guy? <laughs> so uh, Steve, um, you know, I guess thought it would be smart to have me sort of uh, be uh, work under Dave right. and work on a uh, on a pro on a game program. Um, Rich, your 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 first video game position at Atari, of course, was under the wing of Dave Toyer, um, and you were assigned the role of, of junior programmer on Missile Command. Can you can you tell us from your perspective how that game came to life? Sure. Um... I was, you know, asked to join a meeting. I think it was in Lyle Raines's office, and uh, it had Lyle and Steve Calfe, um, Dave Toyer, me, Dave Sherman, and I think it was Dave Story was going to be the technician who was going to be assigned on that game, or he might have been the supervisor of technicians, and he was going to assign somebody else. And so um, Lyle said, um, "Look, we're starting a new project, and." We want to do, um, we want you guys to do this team and, you know, Rich, we're going to have two programmers on this because we think it's important and, you know, good for you to uh, uh, work with Dave or uh, and such. And so, and so he said, and, and so here's the idea. And he picked up this, this magazine. I can't remember what it was. It was some computer magazine. And um, he said um, that Gene Lipkin, the uh, VP of sales, had come to him and handed him that magazine and he opened it to a page that had this sort of, I think it was a, a war simulation thing, with, uh, but it was a color graphics, um, showing off some color graphics. And he, what he said to Lyle was, he said, uh, make me a game that looks like this. And that was Gene's, you know, contribution. And so Lyle uh, said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to have a color game and then we're going to have a game where missile trails are going to come down from the top of the screen and you're going to have some bases at the bottom and you're going to have to shoot down those missiles um, with your missiles and uh, you need to defend your your bases. And that's the game. And so I um, thought, okay, that sounds interesting. And then he went into described, you know, that... Uh, Sherman was going to be doing custom hardware and they had some ideas about how that was going to work. And we would, you know, basically be writing into a bitmap and, you know, kind of describe the general architecture of, of what the hardware might be. 
And so um, that was the meeting. And so then we were off and running from there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking at the early design proposals for Missile Command that you pulled together with Dave, the gameplay described um, seems to be a little bit different to the finished product. You know, can you walk us through, you know, that development process? What, what do you recall changing significantly? Okay, so at first we started out, you know, doing pretty much you know, the idea missiles would come down and then an explosion would happen. And if the explosion, um, circular explosion, you know, intersected with the tip of the missile, then it would explode and that could be cascading, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it was, it was fun, but it wasn't fun enough. And so, you know, we were, we had this meeting and, you know, one of the review sessions and we're going, what do we do? And Calfi and, and Toyer, were, I, I think, were kind of the ones who came up with this. And they just said, well, why don't we do something that is a smart bomb that tries to avoid these explosions and tries to go around them? Yeah. And so, you know, talked about that. And Dave, you know, was brilliant. And his implementation of that idea was fairly brilliant. You know, those things were were hard. They were not impossible. And so um, the, the, he tuned those up pretty damn well. And then I think also the center missile base did not, you know, and then the initial thing was not to have the center base have faster missiles or something. So I think that might have been another uh, addition. Um, and then, you know, the... Um, Doing the coastline was kind of my job, and I tried like crazy to make it look like California, and it looked like some horrific, <laughs> some horrific blob along the bottom of the screen. And it was Lyle Rains who who basically drew what ended up being uh, the, the you know the bases at the bottom of the screen, you know, along with those raised missile bases. Yeah, yeah. What about what about the um, this sweeping radar screen idea? Um, which I think was a, which does sound really really neat, but I believe it just it, it would just prove to be extremely difficult to implement that kind of thing. I think. Well, it was that. I think there was also yeah, there was the the sort of uh, how much processor time it took to do that, but I think it was also kind of distracting. And um, yeah, yeah, so I, I think it was more the distraction factor that was uh, the thing that made that not very um, uh, desirable. Uh, ultimately almost too too realistic rather than right. fun even if it had correct worked. correct right. there's there that there's a line there where you want to still be in the game land not you know uh reality land yeah um moving on slightly into in terms of you know talking about changes and alterations um you know the biggest challenge arguably was the decision to remove the huge attract panel um which was on the prototype cabinet before release with, with all the blinking lights and flashing buttons and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I did, uh, anybody who's seen a, a prototype missile command cabinet, which is probably more likely these days because I believe um, new wave toys are, are, are doing some little, little lovely little repros. So it's going to be right. larger in the public imagination, if you like. Um, did, did you agree with the decision to remove that huge attract panel or was it, was it above your pay grade? Well, it was certainly above my pay grade. Right. Uh, but, but what I, I guess at the end of the day, I, I pretty much, I kind of agreed with it. I thought that it was cool. Mm. Um, but was the return on the investment, you know, worth it because, did it do anything for the real gameplay? Was the player engaged with that panel above at all while they were playing the game? Well, no, 
because the you know the screen required your 100% attention yep. in order to be good at the game so you know the track panel was or that that upper track panel was more for like an audience around the person or or to lure somebody in to say ooh what is it you know what's going on here i want to be i i want to be in uh, in control of something that cool looking yeah and i i guess i guess you know rather like the sweeping radar screen it was it was probably best to remove any non-essential distractions it, uh, there was there was that i mean if you were going to get good at the game that thing was not in your field of view ever yeah, yeah. so so um you know I, I i ended up with one of those prototype cabinets oh. and i i had that machine in my house for many many years did you where is it now don't start me off rich <laughs> where did that go rich i yeah i i um i have had many um you know uh glares stared through my skull <laughs> from people when i tell them i have no idea wow. uh, i think it it got lost in a move at some point okay oh, got lost in a jeez are you sure it's not still in your old house, Rich? Behind a wall. It's being plastered, plasterboarded behind a wall. Right. Or something. <laughs> here's, here's one story I will... Uh, it did get stolen one time that I and I recovered it. Oh, please elaborate. I'll tell you the story. So um, I played like um, competitive Frisbee. It was kind of a precursor sort of independently uh, invented. It's a different strain of ultimate Frisbee. Uh, similar team frisbee game, but our, we had a few different rules. Razor blades around the edges of the frisbee. <laughs> yeah, not not quite. Yeah, sorry, not quite that. Although I do, I was talking to my son who wants to do a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex frisbee game, which I think is kind of a genius <laughs> video game idea. Those tiny, those tiny arms. It'll never work with the tiny arms. <laughs> <laughs> that would be oh, it would be so good. It would be so good. <laughs> But I digress. So, so in any event, one of the guys um, who played that game he had some personal problems, and so uh, I think it was like um, it was a holiday. It might have been Thanksgiving or Christmas or something. And I I left town, um, and I told him, "Yeah, I'm out of town, whatever." And while I was gone, this guy who was a friend of mine who I knew uh, went in and stole my game oh. told people who where I lived he said oh no Rich said I could come by and borrow the game and blah 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 wow. yeah and so um, I was like wow and so then I had this upstairs neighbor and he said Rich about a couple months later he said Rich I think I saw your game in this guy's garage you should go over there and so I went over there and here he is some former cop really which, Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure this was part of some drug transaction that, you know, the, um, the game was sold in order to get this guy drugs. So, um, I went over there and I said, dude, I think I have, you have my game. And he said, well, how do you know? I said, well, (laughs) there's only, Uh, that thing has an overhead panel that only, you know, there are only a couple in the world and that one is mine. And he basically said, okay, come by and pick it up. And uh, so I ended up getting it back. Well, the guy was committed. I mean, it's not like stealing a push bike, is it? (laughs) This is a, you know, 500 pound, seven foot tall, monstrous bit of wood and metal and glass. Yeah, I know he had to have a dolly and a truck and everything. He was serious. Um, Rich, you, you, you've often referred to Missile Command as very much Dave's baby. Um, but how much of what we see in Missile Command were you actually directly responsible for? Okay. So uh, 
what is my fault in that game? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did all of, you know, I did the coastline. I, I did the bottom, you know, I did all the code run length encoding, you know, display of the coastline. And I even maybe did um, the missiles at the bottom too. Maybe I, I think I might've done that. Dave, I will say this. Anything that I wrote, I'm sure Dave rewrote, you know. Right. Okay. He he probably laid his hands upon every line of code that I put in the game. Right. I've right. said that to him and he said, oh, not really, Rich. And that's probably Dave Toyer being the generous Dave Toyer. Um, so um, the other thing I did was all of the um, the text primitives, you know, all the primitives that drew text. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, the, um, I put the, you know, I, I, I don't remember how I did it, but I ended up, you know, doing the whole, you know, all of the bitmap for all, for each of the, um, alpha numerics in the game. And, you know, while I did it, it was kind of, you know, my idea. It's like, you know what, I could just put a multiplier on each axis and you could display, you know, two X, three X, sized, you know, characters with just, you know, a simple, you know, loop inside of this routine. And so I did uh, write it in such a way that you could expand it, you know, vertically or horizontally um, independently, which, you know, is one of the reasons why the end is so big at the very end of the game and such. So it's iconic. Um, it's iconic. Yeah. You did the big end. Fantastic. It was, it, was, it was game over until that point. <laughs> Didn't seem that sexy at the time. No, sure. But, uh, you know, iconic in retrospect. Um, Rich, you know, much has been written about Dave Toyer's nightmares and cold sweats during the development of Missile Command, which I think, uh, you know, he stated was triggered by the theme mixed in with, I guess, with, with the prevailing existential and substantive threat of actual nuclear war in the early 80s. Mm. I mean, is this apocryphal or, or, or very much the real deal is this would you say this is um dave was definitely going through some um a little bit of trauma so to speak you know working on this at this time i, I he was not transparent about that um uh dave is a very intense person okay. he is like fully committed to whatever dave is doing and so you know he's all in and i, I just think that's kind of part of his personality and, and mm. you know, ways that he sort of maybe processed that, um, you know, it was a real point of discussion uh, at the time. It's like, wow, you know, we're doing a game, you know, about Armageddon, you know, the, our, everyone's worst fear. Um, and so, that you know, there was discussion about it, but, you know, kind of at the end of the day, my, my sort of way that I reconciled it was it's just a game, you know, we're, we're making a, we're making a game. We're not making a political statement. We're not proponents of anything. Yeah. Um, and so that was the way that I sort of reconciled it with myself. And, and you know, Dave is um, like I said, is an intense guy. And I, I think, you know, he, he probably, you know, had his, his way of doing it. Although, you know, his dreams is what gave us Tempest. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I was only uh, like four at this time. And I, I, I've got vague nebulous memories of, um, you know, nuclear Armageddon <laughs> being in the news. I, I remember, you know, foreboding stories and, and, and mum and dad talking about this kind of thing. You know, maybe I'm underestimating the psychological impact of living through these times at a certain age. Well, yes and no. I mean, 
I grew up an Air Force brat. My dad was in Strategic Air Command. We were we were stationed in I think Del Rio, Texas, when the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening. Yeah. Um. And you know he, my uh, first grade teacher was her husband was shot down as a U two pilot. Wow. Over wow. uh over Cuba, I think, and so. You know, it was sort of front and center as a little kid. And then you would do those drills or whatever, you know, go under your desk and, you know, like your desk is going to save you. Proper door, 45 degree, 45 degree angle to the wall and survive a nuclear bomb. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even as a second grader, I was like, this seems pointless. I mean, it's like, there's no way. But, but in any event, you know, I, I... I think instinctively as a young person, I also sort of understood that, you know, human, the instinct for survival, self-preservation is probably going to save everyone. Yeah. I didn't know the term mutually assured destruction, but the idea was, was, and so I sort of always felt like if it really goes off the rails, there's nothing I can do, but it probably won't because, you know, nobody wants to die. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, what else can you tell us, Rich, about working with Dave during this time? You know, were you a good team? Was was this buddy system, as it were, common practice within the coin-up division at Atari? It really worked out well for me. I will say that. I, I, I think, you know, I was probably non-zero amount of help to the project. Um, but You're very modest, Rich. You're very modest. <laughs> as a younger person, um, at that time in my career... I was not as driven uh, by the work as certainly Dave Toyer was at the time, and and a lot of the a lot of my colleagues there were all, you know, very a lot of their you know sort of psyche and their their um, ego was invested in in that kind that part of their life. Um, to me, at the beginning, it was just a job. I mean, I I remember uh, you know looking forward to five thirty and you know uh, heading home. And there was even one point sort of late in the project when, you know, things were getting to crunchy uh, phase um, where Dave took me aside and he said, look, man, you know, I noticed you're like getting out of here at like 5, 530 every day. And, you know, this project is really hard. I'm I'm working really late hours. And so, you know, I would appreciate it if you would, you know, sort of uh, step up your game. I'm I'm sure that Dave didn't say it in that way. Um, but that was the message. Yep. And yep. so, you know, it was, it was, um, that gave me a bit of, you know, uh, different perspective and, and I may have changed a little bit on that, but, you know, ultimately, you know, I ended up, you know, falling into the same, you know, I got the virus <laughs> and, and, uh, finishing a game is hard. There's a million details and they all have to be perfect or else, um, it's probably going to be broken. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, you know, when I ended up having my own, you know, projects, um, I ended up, uh, losing large sections of my life to my professional career. Sure. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. As you, as, as you got closer to the release date of August, 1980, um, you know, were you more and more certain that you were working on an absolute stone cold classic, a real hit? Um, I felt like, yes. And, you know, the reason why is because, um, for one thing, it was like one of the first color games. So it had that gigantic advantage. Yes, uh, yes. And so, uh, but, you know, the beautiful, uh, the thing I love the most about the coin-op market itself is that 
man, it is just a cold, cold metric yep. as to whether you're going to succeed or you're not going to succeed. And that's how much money is in the coin box. You know, that it's really, there's no real squishy, you can't squiggle out of it. So when the game was out on test, you know, I go observe and see what people would do. And, you know, just to see the sort of, you know, unabashed enthusiasm and the sense of wonder on people's faces. And um, yeah, it was pretty clear that it was, it wasn't going to be a failure um, to the extent, how much would it succeed? Well, uh, that was not, you know, I would never be able to predict that, but it, it certainly was going to be, it was going to find some success in the market. Yeah. And how do you feel now about, about Missile Command and its its place in the pantheon of video game history, Rich? Are you, um, presumably you're proud of your involvement, probably safe to say? Yeah, without question. Um, I just feel lucky to have been able to work on it. Uh, you know, it was really a fun experience and um, I learned a lot doing it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think just, you know, I was lucky to be a part of it is probably the best way to, to describe my feelings about it. Rich, tell us about the um, the follow-up, which which didn't transpire, Missile Command 2. How, how did that work out for you? And, and why didn't we why didn't we see that in, in actuality? It was a two-player, the concept was two-player Missile Command. You would play against another human or you would play, you know, one player against, you know, uh, you know, in more traditional missile command style. Um, but what that meant was that you had to rotate uh, the screen ninety degrees and play, you know, long, the long way, um, which narrowed the screen down. And it just, you know, playing against another person, you know, shooting missiles at the other guy and then shooting back. I just could never really make that. I just couldn't find any make any magic out of that. I, 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 I tried and tried and I, I don't really even remember, um, all the details of, you know, techniques and, and, you know, features I tried to implement to, to make it magic, but it just, the magic didn't happen. And so, I don't know, three, four, five months in people just kind of like, you know, I just, I, I'm not sure there's anything there, there mm, or, that's a shame. or, Rich couldn't make anything there. There, <laughs> okay. Am I uh, maybe? To I mean, you, you'll be able to answer this, I'm sure. But uh, Tony, I was chatting to Tony earlier on today, and uh, he mentioned, I think, that Missile Command Number One had originally had uh, a second player option at some stage. Am I? Am I? Am I right in thinking that? Or was that was was um, that the was that the cockpit version? No, I don't think so. Oh, I, I don't okay. really remember ever there being a two player. Uh, like a two-player collaborative thing. Have I got the wrong, Tony? What? Not in yeah, the. I th yeah, I think I was referring to the cockpit. Right. There's some original artwork of the cockpit control panel, which had a one and two-player start button. Oh, turn by turn. Okay. And of course, the final release only had a one-player button, and presumably the reason was someone quickly figured out you don't want people clambering in and out of the cockpit right. to take their turn, take their turn. Right, 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 to, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. It was a sit down. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But on Missile Command 2, Rich, the code surface did it not fairly recently and somebody managed to pull it together and they stuck it in a uh, Atari football cabinet and managed to get it running. <laughs> One of the California Extreme shows. Humans are strange creatures. <laughs> did you know that, Rich? Were you aware of that? <laughs> I was not aware of that. Yeah, it's it, it 
there's there's some footage on. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a link to the video. I'm sure there's a, there's a video somewhere of, of it actually running. Yeah, humans are strange, but people who collect video game cabinets uh, are even stranger. <laughs> I think that's safe to say. Even stranger. Yeah. <laughs> okay, lovely, uh, Rich. Thank you so much. I'm going to hand you over to Paul, who's going to talk to you about Gravatar. Rich, after the mighty Missile Command, your next project was a colour vector title, which eventually became known as Gravitar. Now, you worked on that with Mike Halley. Having had Mike Halley as a guest on this podcast, uh, I'm guessing that he was quite a different character to Dave Toyer. Yeah, no, uh, Halley was very, very different than Dave. He was, um, well, I mean, he wasn't a programmer. He was a, you know, a mechanical guy. And, uh, you know, he, yeah, very different than Dave. So more talkative, perhaps. Yeah, no, he was he was a good, fairly good communicator. He, he let me sort of do my thing, certainly way early on, because there's not really much he could do until I got, you know, the hardware running and the basics you know, going. Um, and then, so, you know, we did go back and forth, obviously, at the very beginning when we were trying to figure out, you know, what game are we going to do? I mean, we, there was a whole discussion about whether, you know, what game idea do we want to even try and, you know, attack? And um, so... Perhaps you could tell us then is that where did the idea for the game that became Gravitar actually a start was it were you riffing on asteroids perhaps it was uh actually a riff on lunar lander and it wasn't me uh, i think it was mike jang who had written up a game idea and the game idea was called lunar battle okay and the the idea was is that you're like take lunar lander but you're trying to somebody's trying to blast you out of the sky and you're trying to get make it down to the surface <laughs> and so you're trying to battle your way to get to the surface to land i thought that was a cool idea mm -hmm. uh, that is a cool idea and actually Lu lunar battle sums it uh, up nicely except of course the the game didn't end up being called lunar battle before we talk about the development should we talk about the the name that um, apparently it, it took a lot of um, discussion before you actually settled on a final name. Can you tell us a little bit about? Well, that? yeah, the the name was. Um, it took a while. You're correct, and I had ideas about um, what I, I names that I liked, um, and um, Gravatar came from. I don't remember whether it was. It didn't come from anybody on the team. It came from, I think, somebody over in marketing or in sales or something. Um, and I was pretty unenthusiastic about it. I just felt like it, it did not really speak to what, I mean, the game was about gravity, uh, but, you know, it didn't really kind of speak to the magic of the game. I came in one day and I was all fired up. I was like, oh, I just thought of the greatest name, you know, Firepower. And I tell this to Halley. I said, Firepower. Now that is a great name for this game. And he goes, oh, you mean like that? There was another game. I can't remember. It was a Williams game or something. And I'm like, oh, shut the hell up. Ah, yeah. damn. So... Uh, we um, we've actually seen we've actually seen that you and Mike put together a memo that you sent out to your colleagues yeah. um, asking for their views. On, well, first of all, that memo is fantastic. I mean, it, it, you send it to the general grunt population, <laughs> uh, and then you also you also know that uh, once you've got feedback, that you'll uh, you'll send it to the legal department for quote their blessing. <laughs> um, so. 
some of the, the names on that, Destiny was one. I rather like that. A bit of mileage in that. And I like the one from Donna Bailey. Right. Who actually scribbled at the bottom Cosmos, which um, is kind of a nice nod to an old game. But I suppose I really want to know is that, um, is that does it really matter what the name was? How important do you think the name is for a, for a game to be successful? On the margins. I mean, what you're selling is fun. I mean, nobody's going to walk away from something because of what it's called. I mean, if it looks fun and it, and it looks intriguing and you put in a quarter and you feel like, wow, I could do better at that. I, that, that was fun. Uh, and I can get better and I have a chance. I, I think at the end of the day, that, again, this is why I love the, the you know, the coin op market is, is, you know, it is Darwinian as hell. <laughs> you succeed because you're good. Well, as Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name would play a sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about now developing the game. You alluded to earlier there that because Mike wasn't a programmer, I presume that you now took the lion's share of the actual coding of this game as opposed to Missile Command where you were you were the junior partner. Yeah, I, I took the whole share. I mean, I, I wrote every line of code in there except for the coin routine, which was a black box of magic. Right. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so yeah, I, I did everything. And, you know, I we, um, you know, the, the cycle would be is that you would get, you know, you'd start this this game project and then somebody would bring in a, a, a prototype piece of hardware uh, and you'd write self-test routines to make sure the hardware was, to exercise the hardware to make sure that it was doing what hardware guy said it should do. So you debug any, you know, design flaws or, or anything. And um, once you're done with that, then you can write, you know, like start writing, uh, you know, the primitive core of the game. So, you know, all of that takes some time. And so, uh, you know, I was, you know, off in a lab doing my thing for, you know, that, that part of the, the um, project. And, you know, as a part of that process, you know, you learn to, you exercise the hardware, right? And so one of the areas that I did, and the thing that I thought was super cool about vector hardware was the scale, was the scaling hardware and that you could just like move a number and you could scale an object, you know, scale a drawing. And I just thought, wow, the zooming thing is a super cool thing. I want to try it. I think I had a bug one time where it I I increased that number and I watched the thing come from a dot into a whole landscape and I thought that is the coolest thing. That is the coolest mistake I've ever made. Because <laughs> actually it becomes part of the gameplay. It's not just that it looks cool on the on the the uh, track mode with the the logo coming in and out, but the fact that you know if you encounter some ships on the kind of the hub world, it kind of zooms into that as well. So clearly it added to the gameplay does it does it mean you could take the gameplay whichever way you wanted you know that you hadn't got it sort of scripted in a way that you know maybe people do have now oh we were making it up as we went along there's no question about that i mean you know that you had a basic game concept and we had lunar battle but you know and so lunar battle was you know you battle your way down to the surface and so mike and i you know i think even um joe coddington actually was played a hand although joe was not really heavy duty into the you know the game design aspect of it but we mike and i had many discussions about where we should take the 
basic lunar battle idea. And, you know, I was, I was saying we should not like just make it to the service. You should like have fuel and you go pick up fuels and you have to fight your way to get to the fuel. And then that makes the game deeply extensible. So, you know, there was that. And then, oh, we can have multiple worlds and then multiple universes. And, you know, it was all sort of, you know, woodshedding uh, as, you know, in the early part of the project. And that stuff is some of the stuff that gets done, you know, when somebody's like working on, you know, bringing up the hardware. Mm. Yeah. I'll ask you a little bit about the hardware because, of course, it's not only vector yeah. hardware, which are the first vector game you'd, you'd worked on, but also it's color. So perhaps you could, I mean, I understand that that technology is especially temperamental. <laughs> Would that be fair to say? Is it is it quite a challenge just to to make sure the thing doesn't, you know, burn a hole in the screen and that. Yeah. I mean, you, right. You, you had to make sure that, um, you didn't, that the beam was moving. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You, you didn't want the beam to just be, you know, uh, static. And so, yeah, we did have to make, you know, that was some of the early, uh, warnings to me because I had control. I, I had the power to screw it up. Um, and so they, they, you know, said, Rich, and you know, make sure. And we had things that, you know, there were, there were rules at Atari about how things should work or especially how things should fail. There was one rule of thumb was the only acceptable failure was a watchdog reset where the entire game would reset and it would just basically go right back into a track mode. And that was the only acceptable way that it would fail. You should never spew garbage on the screen. You should never make it, you know, just fail gloriously in your face. It should just, you know, reset. I like the bit in Gravitol that you've got this sort of central hub and then the players being given some choice. You know, you can you can fly off to different areas. So I just want to ask that. That was quite a new idea, having a central hub. And giving the player choice, was that something important to you? Yeah, it was. I, I mean, video games are about control. You pay a quarter, you get to control, you know, this super complex machine and lose your context in the life that you're living at this moment. You're all of a sudden in some other moment that it's completely absorbing your mind. But it's really about the feeling of control that, because people don't have that much control over things so how ego gratifying is that humans like control did you have these kind of did you have these kind of philosophical discussions in the the corridors of atari um to an extent i think i kind of figured that out later but yeah we we would talk about the whole yeah the, those kinds of things would would be discussed you know there was a really good um collegial culture there and you really were wanting everybody to succeed i i worked in other organizations that were very competitive and not necessarily in a good way atari was uh didn't have one you know molecule of that mm. talking about being competitive we couldn't help noticing um on the high score table for gravitar mm-hmm. according to how many points the players got they're given a, a ranking so it could be co-pilot uh, ace pilot killer pi- pilot or Pontius Pilot. So um, who who went for that? That was me. That was me. That was you. Okay, yeah. right. And I just want to, we're always told that, you know, you, you had to be worried in America for making uh, any offensive remarks around religion. Did, <laughs> did you not get into trouble throwing the Pontius Pilot in? Look, I, I as, as almost every game designer thinks, and they're proven wrong every single time by 
people like Tony <laughs> is that nobody's ever going to be able to max this game. I'm sorry. They're just, you know, it's too hard. Yeah. And they, they, they <laughs> max humans, max it every time. So did I think that somebody was ever going to see that uh, Pontius Pilate list? <laughs> I thought the chances of that were so low, so low. And by the time they did it, you know, it was way too late anyway. So uh, you are, I think you've made a fair point there because um, Gravitar, as much as we like it, and we're not just saying that to you, it is a, a, one of the beloved games on this uh, podcast, is that it's bloody difficult. True. Uh, Rich. Um, too difficult, perhaps, looking back? Sure. Yeah. No, I, I think that is a proper uh, critique. Uh, I was told many times in the lab, Rich, this game is too hard. Right. And and I was like, you know, Owen Rubin told me that many times. And I said... Ooh. And he's notoriously very good at games as uh, well. So you should have listened to him. Well, perhaps I should have, but perhaps I'm too hard-headed to listen to Owen Rubin. Uh, <laughs> and my, uh, my response always was, um, look... You know, it's got Asteroids Control set up. And have you played Defender? <laughs> you know, that is a freaking hard game. And I don't think Defender's collections are that bad. So, it's not as hard as Gravitar, but... <laughs> <laughs> In retrospect, I probably would have been better off had I been a better listener. Okay, that's very honest. But of course, um, you know, if you kept it that hard, I presume that's because you're absolutely brilliant uh, at it, Rich. Have you completed the game yourself? Um, I have. I completed the game myself. Um, not fairly. <laughs> so you've you've cheated. Is that what you you admitted? I, to now, I Rich? certainly. You, you cheat at your own game. Of course. I mean, I, I look, the one thing about being a, a game designer, especially back in those days, is you're literally God. You know, I can I can tell you when you're dead. I do tell you when you're dead. I can make you alive. I can create a world. So, you know, it's kind of heady. But and so there is a God mode in Gravatar mm -hmm. that if you go into self-test and you press all the keys down simultaneously, the game starts and you are now um, indestructible by, uh, you can't be shot down by any of the bases. I think you can still collide with the ah. land. And did you accidentally leave that in to the released version as well? Oh yeah, no, you could, that, that if you go into self-test, it'll do it for sure. Okay. Did that get you into trouble? I, I think Mike told us that this had been, <laughs> this had been found by some kids in an arcade and you got an angry call saying, hey, how come kids can break into this game? Well, I mean, in order to get into self-test, you have to like open up the coin box and you have to, it's a physical switch. So if somebody getting into self-test doing it, uh, I, to me, I, that doesn't sound like, you know, anything that I should be get into any trouble. And plus it's a diagnostic. It was really a diagnostic thing. It's like, I just wanted to be able to get all the way through the game. Do I want to play through the game to get to, you know, invisible land, negative gravity? You are, you are God. You're allowed to do whatever <laughs> you want, Rich. Um, just one last question on Gravitar. We, it is a beautiful game, but it's also a beautiful cabinet. So we just wondered if you'd, if you had any say in the uh, the cabinet artwork, and, and indeed, what what do you agree with us? We think it's one of the most beautiful uh, of Atari's output back. Yeah, then. I think I think that was Brad Shiboya. Yeah, um, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I I you know I'm artistically challenged, uh, you might say. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I kind of deferred to the professionals in that area. You know, if I really didn't like something, I probably would have said any said something. Um, 
you know, I did have an opinion about the name and and such, but I don't think I ever chimed in and and with any critique of uh of the cabinet or any of the you know uh, the graphic the you know the print graphic. Uh, work that went into the game. Did you? Sorry to cut in here, uh, Paul. Did did you, Rich, have any um, interaction with George Opperman and Evelyn Seto um, from the art department? Back yeah, then? I mean, you'd run into George, and yeah, I mean, you run into everybody. We all shared the same building. So, um, mm. but did I, as a you know, a professional, go into George and say, you know, George, I've been thinking about my Gravatar game, and yeah. No. <laughs> not really Uh, i'm sure he would have rolled his eyes and said what is this programmer talking about but yeah i i didn't uh i didn't presume to play a part in that because i really wasn't very artistically uh inclined anyway right right do you have any do do you have any memories um any any anecdotes or memories about george george and his team just out of interest yeah george was a highly respected uh and uh, kind of revered person. He, he was clearly, you know, a strong leader of his group. Mm. And uh, so, um, you know, other than that, I, I didn't, you know, they were upstairs, so I may have run into him casually, but I didn't really ever, you know, uh, bond with George at a, you know, trade show in Chicago or, or anything. <laughs> okay. Is that code for you actually did and you both got stoned or is that literally just no, you didn't? No, I, I won't throw, I won't throw George under the bus in that way. There, okay, there, might, <laughs> there might be others who I could throw under the bus, but I w- wouldn't be George Opperman. Um, Rich, just picking up on something you said earlier, you, you, you said that the coin-op industry back then and arguably now is a cruel mistress and, you know the coin box doesn't lie do you do you find it slightly I- ironic that these classic games have got a sort of second like a second wind so something like gravatar whereas out on the arcade floor one could argue it wasn't atari's biggest hit <laughs> and yet now it's revered by idiots like me all over the world who you know i want a gravatar i want an original gravatar i love the fact that it's difficult i it, it's kind of surprising that um on the one hand that you know the the work that we did in the 70s and 80s still have legs um it's somewhat surprising although you could argue really the other side of the coin and that is look Fun is fun, and you can go out today and you can get the most, you know, super rich, visually super rich, mind-blasting experience um, with modern video games. But you know, there's there's sort of a romance and a and a uh, a beauty in in a simple game. And the games that we did, you know, in those days, you know, they were complex for their day, but in, in by today's standards, they're very simple. And so um, fun is, will endure. If it's, if it's fun 40 years ago, it can still be fun. And so on that, from that perspective, I, I think it isn't surprising, but for people to sort of have, you know, some kind of romantic yeah, you know, attachment sure. to, you know, bygone days is... It's kind of surprising that part of it. Is. Gra- if I may interject again, Gravatar's gameplay is 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 genuinely timeless. Um, and Tony, what was what was the game that we played at Free Play Florida, which clearly riffed on on, on Gravatar and, and Space Duel, etc. What what was that? Oh, uh, Cosmotron. Cosmotron. Yeah. So I mean, that was a modern day attempt to replicate that gameplay. And the, indeed, Gravatar and and Asteroids, the, 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 their legacy endures for sure. <laughs> Thank you. 
Uh, Rich, we've we've spoken about these two games, which you had a hand in, Missile Command and Gravatar, but we wonder if you can just talk briefly about the general working environment at Atari Coin-Op. Sure. Um, you know, that was one of the finest working cultures that I've been a part of in my career, and I've been part of a lot of them. <laughs> and, um, you know, the times were unique because you could say, hey, what if we did a game like this? And then there, you know... The answer wasn't, well, there's like 16 other games that are based on that idea already. So there was, we were filling a vacuum. So we were lucky in that regard. But um, aside from that, the, the culturally, the way that Lyle and Calfi and uh, Steuben and all of the others who were involved in the, in the oversight of our efforts, they gave us our head. And and by that, I mean, we we were not micromanaged in the least. And so, you know, people expected you, there was an expectation that you would behave as a professional. And uh, people did. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said at the beginning, you know, I just kind of looked at it as a job. I didn't look at it as a job at the end. I, I, you know, I was fully committed. I wanted to, you know, make the next great product and I was willing to work hard to do it. So it, it is kind of like a virus, you know, where you, you catch it and, and you, you know, become that. Um, there was a lot of really smart people that worked really, really hard. And the other part that I did mention already was that it was very collaborative. I mean, if you ever had like a really, really gnarly problem, you would go to Dr. Bizarro, who was Mike Alba. And he was like the, he was like a god, a, god, a programming god. It's like he, he could come up with um, unique solutions to thorny problems. And so um, that is one example. Mike wasn't the only one who would be that way. So, so you would, talk to others about how what you might be working on and the approach you were taking or the things you were having problems with or whatever and you know just even saying out loud what the problem is can many times direct you to the solution in your mind anyway but you know it was very collaborative uh culturally and very very free we we got to manage our own time and uh uh, that that made it a really really fun place to work and a fun place to work hard. Mm. Interesting. You you referenced the um, the amount of downtime that you had, which which was just purely a result of the way the games were coded in those days. Do you think that contributed to the collaboration because you guys had nothing else to do but to wander the labs and check out what other people were doing certainly the the rhythm of you know write code submit your code and have someone you know put it in and then you know get your uh memory back that contained your you know compiled program gave you the time while you were waiting for a listing or waiting for your compile to go and play somebody else's game. And, uh, you know, you, me just playing some game in, in the lab can either find a bug or maybe make a suggestion or maybe somebody's watching me play and they have an idea. And you could also basically tell whether you actually had something good on your hands yeah. because you, you know, it's like, uh, can I have my game back now? I need to do some programming on it. Right. Stop playing my game. Uh, so a lot of times when there was just people in your game, in your lab all the time playing your game, 
that was a good sign. Yeah, interesting. Well, I'm I'm going to pull the handbrake here, Rich, and talk about May 1982. Um, you you famously sent a memo to Atari's <laughs> top brass titled, "Why am I working so hard to make a quality product?" True. If you can indulge me, and probably for the benefit of our listeners, to give them some context, I just want to quote a a few lines from it. Um, <laughs> So this this was a memo that uh, Rich Adams sent to Atari's top brass, and it went something like this. There is an epidemic raging through the coin-op marketing and engineering management staff. The disease is called license fever. It destroys the brain cells of its victims, crippling their thought processes. These poor souls can no longer distinguish between a product that is junk and one that has the quality the public identifies with Atari. How could a healthy, logical person make a decision to build a game of the calibre of Kangaroo based on one week's collections report? Such a decision must be the result of a severe cranial dysfunction. The impact of Kangaroo to Coinop's reputation is discouraging to think about. More serious, however, is the impact on engineering. The mere consideration of these half-done games is confusing to engineers who are used to much higher standards. The result? Even lower morale. <laughs> I just wonder if you could tell us what was behind your decision to pen this memo. Well, first of all, perhaps my diplomacy was lacking. Uh, <laughs> but look, I, I had heard, I think it was Joe Robbins had come in as the president of Atari and he made this deal to license Kangaroo and distribute Kangaroo. And, I, you know, part of it was emotional. Part of it was you know, ego that I had invested in the Atari brand and 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 the games that were coming out of our 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 engineering facility, and I felt protective of that. Um, and I didn't really like the idea of some you know interloping you know second tier company uh, getting you know the Atari brand. Right. That you know we worked really hard to uh, you know make and protect. So um, that was mostly what was behind it. Now, you know, the other part of it is, you know, it was like, I just didn't like the idea of us, of them going outside of the engineering department. I, I, I'm sure that part of it was, you know, sort of an instinctive, you know, threat. Uh, for me, it's like, oh, you're going to go buy product now. Okay. So we're not so you're not sole sourcing us. That's that's not good. Um, and so uh, I think it was all of those things. Uh, I I just didn't like it. Um, and I will say at times it would really fry me to look at collections reports and see kangaroo out earning <laughs> gravatar. Yeah, <laughs> that would okay. fry me at times. Yeah, that, it it didn't. Uh, I, I didn't feel like I was winning that battle at that point. Yeah, I've 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 got written down here to myself as as my next question. Um, kangaroo wasn't that bad, was it? But actually, now that I think about it, I think it probably was a a pretty average game. It, I guess I just didn't think it it's it aspired mm. to to anything great. It was just sort of like you know here we you know I'm just gonna throw out. I, yeah, I just didn't think it aspired to extend the art form yeah sure so uh, just going back to the memo uh rich did i mean what 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 was the internal sort of rumor mill doing i mean did any of your colleagues suggest maybe sending that memo wasn't a great idea no no nobody uh so i think i just did it i mean i i don't think i really consulted with anybody i just i i was I was mad and um, uh, and I just decided I was going to do it. And uh, the only feedback I got, I think, was from Dan Van, who sort of said, you know, he sort of gave me some 
level of support. He was like supportive of me defending the engineering department. Okay. And, and that was the only thing I really ever heard about that. I think they mostly just ignored it and said, you know, what is this engineer? Just you know, put him on ignore. <laughs> he was the he was the Rennie Zellweger to your to your Jerry Maguire then. Right. Correct. So you didn't get your day in court then, Rich. That's a that's a, that's a shame. No, I didn't. But but of course the um the great irony now looking back forty years later is is um according to Atari's records, Kangaroo sold nine thousand eight hundred units versus Gravitar's five thousand four hundred. So like what do any of us know, right? Exactly. So you know, it's a it's a Darwinian uh, business, and that product was out earned Gravatar. So there it is. Rich, it sounds like things weren't always rosy in uh, CoinOp, as your recollection of the kangaroo license has just illustrated. Um, did that impact your decision to leave Atari in 1983? Um, it wasn't really that. It was, um, uh, I think, you know, I had emotionally a lot invested in in um, in my job. Mm-hmm. And I had worked really hard on an Empire Strikes Back project that I, I really just sort of burned out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, looked around to try and do some other things. And then it was really more, um, you know, a disagreement between... Uh, it was kind of me and Calfi, really. Uh, well, did you clash? You clashed? Yeah. No, we. I. I had a. I got a review and a and a raise that it wasn't wasn't exactly what I felt like I deserved. And so when I when I pushed back on that, you know, Steve was a tough nut. He was he was a no nonsense person. And okay. you know, Steve told me he said, "Look, you vote with your feet around here." And maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need somebody who's like a sacrificial lamb, you know, who's going to like, who's going to bail. Right. And I was like, okay, you're daring me. <laughs> I see. Okay. And so it kind of, you know, verbally ended there. But that at, at that point, I was just like, okay, I think maybe I'll just look around. Wow. Do you think he was calling your bluff there? Yeah, I think Steve was, you know, um, plus, you know, I probably, maybe there was more repercussions from Rich being such a, you know, opinionated memo writer (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe maybe that memo had sort of lodged in his brain there um you mentioned could have had to deal with people saying shut that guy up would you yeah well um you mentioned there that you'd um that you'd worked on the empire strikes back i mean is that the one that was released albeit as a as a soft kit oh okay so tell us what were you working on then so um we did um you know a license with um, Lucas to do all three games. And so um, we, and I, I don't know how the hell I ended up getting Empire, but I ended up getting Empire. And so I wrote up a game design for that game. And um, and then Dennis Harper had um, Jedi and um, Halley. Well, it wasn't Halley at the time. It was Greg Rivera um, who had Star Wars. And so you know, we went in and pitched Lucas on, on all of those, went up to their offices up in Marin and um, pitched them on the, on, um, on our ideas and they basically went for them. So um, Lyle had put, he, Lyle had come up with this idea about how to do some graphics, sort of medium res graphics in a cost effective way. And so we, Dennis and I used that hardware and I worked on that game, uh, brought the hardware up and did, worked on the initial uh uh, the first 
you know, phase of the game, which was, you know, the probots are coming down to try and hmm. identify Hoth and yeah. they were they were beaming up, you know, one letter at a time and you had to like blast these probots before they spelled Hoth and when they spelled Hoth the level was over and you you know, that was it. Um Right. Did any so all these game ideas then? I mean this is nineteen eighty three, I think. So presumably the original Star Wars was still in development at this point. Yeah, I think it was. Um, and so um, I, I think when I think Rivera and Halley and those guys basically took the Star Wars, you know, game engine and and after Star Wars was done, they um, used that to try and do Empire and clearly. And so and I'm sure they borrowed, you know, some of the ideas, you know, all of the ideas weren't dumb. So they took some of them. I didn't really pay a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, attention to like oh this idea they took that idea they took and you know or, or you said it was a collaborative atmosphere yeah, so. right. you were, you said that you, you when you said you went went up to see them did you go to lucas ranch did you meet george lucas we didn't meet lucas now we went to their offices i think it was in san rafael mm -hmm. they had um like their corporate offices were in san rafael we didn't go up to uh skywalker ranch um and we met with, I think, a lot of their marketing, some of their marketing people who made decisions about whether they were going to do licensing okay. or not. Not quite as sexy as meeting George. But even so, um, I, so you do end up leaving uh, Atari um, and joined Ballet Sente. Now, at that point, um, well, Sente, uh, was, it was a lot of your ex-Atari colleagues sure. were involved there. Is, is, I mean, was that a big reason why you went to to Sente because you, you knew a lot of the people there. Yeah. I mean, it was relationships, you know, I knew Rockberg and, and, uh, Howard Delman and, uh, I knew Roger too. You know, I saw what they were doing and, and, uh, I thought, oh, this could be fun. So yeah, uh, it was really, uh, more about that. Uh, did you think it was going to be Atari 2.0? You know, I, 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 th I think we were, we wanted to compete with Atari. There's no question about that. We wanted to compete with everybody, compete with Williams, compete with, you know, everybody in the market. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I necessarily saw it as, as um, um, trying to build an organization to compete. I didn't really think at that a high strategic level until kind of later in my career where it's like, okay, how do I build an organization? At that point, I was just really focused on making product and so you know that was that was the uh, that was the focus and so they were a vehicle that allowed me to uh try and make product okay when when nolan um i mean he originally bought video didn't he that was set up by the the people you mentioned howard delman ed robberg and roger hector and his big idea was this this sente system right where you would buy one one cabinet and then you'd buy boards that you could easily put in and out. So when you heard of that idea, did you think that is a winner? I thought it was a good idea. A modular system like that was a way more efficient way to go about trying to, uh, you know, service the, the arcade market uh, than, you know, building dedicated hardware from scratch uh, for every third or fourth product. Um, I thought it was more efficient. It had the potential to be more efficient. So from that perspective, yeah. Yeah. I um I I've spoke to Nolan recently and he said that one of the reasons that the system failed was his own fault because he was assuming that he was still like a major player in the arcade business, as he certainly had been at Atari, not some kind of smaller startup. So thinking that Sente could direct, you know, the way the industry was going 
was rather naive. Would you agree with that analysis? Probably. Um, I, I think, yeah, I, I would agree with that analysis. But I think at the end of the day, it all comes back to the coin box. Mm. If if we had made a game that was blowing the coin box, you know, out, out of the door, uh, then, you know, Nolan's reputation would have not have been, a, would have been the same amount of a factor. You know, it's, yeah. so at the end of the day, you know, it really was, you know, did Sente make something that earned, that was a number top earning game? Because that's what you wanted to do. It's a hits business. Should we should we be brutal here then, uh, Rich? Is that, so you've got this company, Sente, who have, amongst their employees, you've got people that have made some of the finest games of the golden age, Asteroids, Battlezone, Missile Command. Yes, Rich, I'm including you in that list of great employees. Sente never produced a title that, could be mentioned in the same breath as those. Why not? That's a really good question. And, you know, it's not that we didn't um, aspire to or didn't have a passion to do it. I mean, uh, I will say there, Lee Actor, yeah. who wrote Snake Pit, and he wrote, what was the hockey? Hattrick. Um, he wrote Hattrick, which Hattrick was a wicked fun game. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that, that you know, Lee had... Lee had uh, had some magic in him in terms of being able to make a game feel good. So, you know, why did we not, why were we not able to replicate the, the magic that came out of 1272 Boregas? Hmm. It's kind of a hard one. It's just, I don't think I can come up with a simple answer to that. Fair enough. Which actually, perhaps we could get some practicalities. Is um, Which actual Sente titles did you have a, a hand in, Rich? Yeah, I I did um, the Trivial Pursuit, all the Trivial Pursuit games. I did those. Um, I did a game which um, I tried, I've never tried to get a game killed so hard and failed <laughs> To right. get a game killed. <laughs> so, and uh, so it's a game called Spiker, which is a ball and shadow oh. game and not not very fun. Uh, and um, so Sorry, I've got to ask. I've got to ask you that. So this is a game that you were making. Normally, you know, games get killed by marketing and you're gutted. You're saying that, that you wanted to strangle your own child. Let's put it like that. Uh, but they wouldn't let you. Does this say something about how desperate they were? for anything to release well it it, what it said was that the way bally was managing the company is that it was more important to put something out on a quarterly basis than it was what the quality of what was being put out there was more value on actually doing it on time than doing it well Mm, that's interesting that's kind of the way the industry ended up going uh, over the next few decades but uh, can let's ask then about the bally bally took when nolan kind of got into financial issues um then bally kind of came and took over um what were they like as kind of you know uber managers was it very different from the atmosphere at atari um we were somewhat insulated uh from it and that in the sense that we were so far away and so like Bob Lundquist had to deal with the ballet guys and and uh probably some sales guys, Jolly Jolly Backer, I think was his name. Uh that's a great name, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he was quite a character. Um in, in any event, they um uh, we were pretty insulated from that. I mean, we did do some things, you know. Uh I did work on a I worked on a Dungeons and Dragons game. We got the Dungeons oh. and Dragons license. I mean, it was pretty really? 
pretty epically. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of a better license to get than that. So, and this is this is before Gauntlet as well, potentially before Gauntlet. Uh, yes, so yeah. what happened there? Did that game well, get I, anywhere? I made the game and what happened was is they basically shut down Sente, uh, Bally did. Oh. And, you know, the game wasn't really done. And they said, you have until, you know, this date. It's It's got to be done by this date. And so I worked like a complete uh, dog for, you know, several months to try and complete that game. But I never really was able to, you know, tie it up. And it was, you know, it was kind of a first person, go down a tunnel and fight your way through. And I had... There was this, um, there was an engineer, Ron Milner at Atari, who uh, invented this device called a space pen, which emitted subsonic clicks um, out of the tip of it. And he had a little device that would hang on a monitor with three little receivers. And so the receivers would receive the clicks and then using, you know, the triangulation, it would figure out where in space the tip of that pen was. And so I thought that was a cool gizmo. And so what I I said was, we should make a sword game out of this. With with a real sword? Is that what you mean? Yeah. With a real sword? With a real sword. Right. You're you're wielding a sword in three space. And um, so I think that helped us, um, you know, get the license from TSR. We went out to Lake Geneva and tricked them into giving us the license. And uh, and so we we made that game. Now it was really actually hard to um, wielding that thing in three space. It was it was pretty hard to get that to translate on screen. It was it was just a tough thing. Okay, I'm just a little bit more because it sounds so ahead of its time. There is it, it was. so you know you could you could sort of stab things or slash things, and the idea was that you'd see those actions in a. A 3D first-person perspective? It was over-the-shoulder 3D, yeah. Okay, so you'd see your character. Right. I see. Well, please tell us that you got... I mean, how how playable was it? Well, we took it to uh, Gen Con and, uh, you know, had people play test it. And it was on free play. And I don't know, we made about 70 bucks on free play. <laughs> <laughs> what, what people were trying to put money in that they, they liked just it so did much. i mean i looked at the coin box afterwards and i'm like what the hell who's these people are putting money in you know and they don't need to well the coin box never lies i presume you quickly took all that and went well it was on free play so <laughs> yeah. we're, we're stuffed. well, well yeah. that's that sounds we love we love hearing about games that didn't quite make it um uh we've had dennis coble on our show previously and we think you might have collaborated on his game, the racing game, Stalker. Is that true? A little bit, yeah. I I had some ideas that ended up in the game, I think. Okay. What um, what was Dennis like to uh, work with? Did you enjoy that collaboration? Dennis fun. He's a, he's a, a talented guy. Um, he, yeah, Dennis is, was a, a great colleague. And I worked with Dennis um, uh, many times uh, when we moved up here, Dennis moved up here and he worked with us, you know, at our, at Mineshaft uh, studio that we had in Grass Valley. So um, Dennis is, you know, he's a talented programmer. He, he can crank out code. 
he has he has some pretty good gameplay instincts too. Yeah, I would agree. Um, whilst we perhaps downplayed some of Sente's um output, is that I must say I've got a very soft spot for Chicken Shift, which I <laughs> think is a really clever game. Yeah. Um, I just wondered, had you got have you got a favorite Sente title, whether you worked on it or or someone else worked worked on it? Um, I think probably Hat Trick, four player Hat Trick, is probably the funnest game uh that came out of that. Uh, you could play, there were some, and it happened every day at lunch. There was, there was a death match between who was, it was Lee and Owen and Ed. And I think it was Paul, Paul Brandt. Mm -hmm. And they had a normal noon game that was uh, a cutthroat. Winning was important. Wow. Okay. So, okay. Death matches before doom. Good to hear. Um, So it sounds like whilst, you know, there was some problems industry wise, is that it sounds like you, you enjoyed your time. And was it a fun place to work at, Rich? Shantin was very fun. Sure. Um, You know, it was, it had basically the same kind of, you know, low oversight structure, um, and we, we got to sort of manage our own time and, and everybody, you know, basically took their job seriously and nobody really took advantage of it. There were people who there's, as there are always, you know, people who just don't work well in that kind of an environment. They're not really set up to succeed, you know, from their personality type. Um, they, they need oversight. Do you, do you want to name names all these years afterwards? <laughs> yeah. I don't think they would be anybody that you would uh, know. So it would probably be better to just let them uh, remain anonymous. That's fine. Uh, that's fine. Um, I would have asked you why you left Sente, but I'm thinking that possibly it was because Sente itself was closed. Is that, were you there at the end? Oh yeah, I was I, I was there at the very last, I was in the building finishing up the code when nobody else was in the building, literally. That oh was wow. the last Such project. What was what was that last project then? Was that the Dungeons and Dragons? That one? was Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. It was. Wow. So the lonely adventure you just had to <laughs> to leave on your own. Did you did you literally shut the door and turn the lights off? Pretty much. I mean I just I'm sure that Bob Lundquist actually closed the facility. I just you know, I left the building and, and you know, said here here's the game, you know, such as it is. Oh, how sad. Um just say you leave Sente and then you move into home console developments, uh, working with EA and other companies, we do focus on coin-ops here. So it was just to, to quickly ask, I mean, was was that inevitable? You didn't look for a job in another coin-op company. Did you think, I need to get into the home market now? That's where the future is. Yeah, I mean, I think I looked at the, the business conditions and I, the arcade business was uh, in, you know, decline. Um, and I didn't, and, and I always felt like, and I still do feel like, you know, the, the advantages, inherent advantages of an arcade game are custom controller and really just the cabinet, uh, you know, just the experience of, of being in a social environment. So, um, that you don't get inside of, um, well, and superior graphics in its day, but by that time the, it was getting flipped on its head. You know, you weren't, you know, the graphics, the home graphics were catching up or surpassing, you know, what was going on in the arcade and, you know, custom controls. Yeah, that that was still going to be an advantage. You were never going to be able to undo that. But um, so I just thought, you know, that market is is getting bigger and that's really where the action's going to be. 
And so that's really was really the main reason for my transition. Mm -hmm. While she spent, you know, many, many years in the the home, you know, the home market, did you find yourself missing coin op looking back at those days from the 70s and 80s longingly? Um, I I wouldn't say that I sort of missed it. I I just, you know, I was glad that I did it. Uh, um, And every kind of situation has its own you know, advantages and disadvantages. So I just saw it as a kind of a uh, a point in time that was really a unique point in time. I mean, I was lucky, you know, I, I got in or got in at the right time and there won't be another time like that, um, certainly in that market. I mean, it was just, you know, so I, I felt like it was kind of a privilege to have experienced it. And, but I certainly was, you know, of the opinion that, you know, that time had come and gone. Rich, do you play modern video games? And if so, what's 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 your bag? What's your favorite um, favorite game of late? I pathetically I, I play a little bit, but um, the game that I would say I I spend most of my time playing right now is Civilization, right? Uh, which I you know I think is a really um, excellent game in terms of the way it's balanced and sure. the different ways you can play it and. And um, so um, I am way much less of a Twitch game player than, you know, I was early in my life. Um, yeah, sure, sure, You know, sure, I, sure. I played I played a lot of Spyro the Dragon because <laughs> I had to. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you um, listen, I mean, uh, it's so obvious to say that the industry has, has evolved beyond all recognition um but what's your take on the on the through line or uh, you know from from video game development in your heyday to to how it is now i mean surely fundamentally despite the billions of dollars and the um the huge development teams and the the, the movie like experiences and and you name it you know surely really fun mm-hmm. is at the heart and and as you said earlier on escapism and and, and control fundamentally psychologically speaking uh, yes i i still think um being in control of a very complex uh machine and an environment is the draw especially you know if you're a male teenager how much control do you have you know and so to feel powerful in the in your own world mm-hmm. is is total ego gratification so i i still think that that dynamic is really at the heart of uh a lot of video games not all of them i mean you know it's candy crush you know are you feeling like you're in control of a you know really complex machine there and being you know ego gratification well you can feel clever at times you know when you play that game uh and games like that game uh but yeah i still think the dynamic uh, drawing in on on many of the games um are are this are, are the same now there's also a huge social component that was never part of it before and you know and that you know you can be you know jousting around with your with your good friends my my son plays dota like it's he should be wearing robes or something when he's playing it uh, well in mark, because, mark zuckerberg's metaverse he probably will be able to yeah no he's it's somewhat religious for him but but he gets to um you know be with his friends, his close friends from yeah. from high school, and you know his closest friends, and they can do it most every night if they want to, 
and be connected in that way. So, you know, the the game world is really, you know, evolved and, and has many sort of layers and textures that it, you know, didn't have early. So, and you can be playing, the, the other part is, and I remember talking to, uh, oh man, I can't remember his name. Uh, at, there was a project called Modem Wars at EA and I ended up being called something else, ended up being called something else, but you were playing uh, against another person via a modem. Oh, okay. And so we were, it was Dave Maynard was the guy and we were walking in the parking lot to our cars one time and he was on that project and he was talking about playing it. And I was, he was saying, yeah, it's really, really interesting. And this problem you we were trying to solve uh, and the communication side. And I said, you know, the thing about that game that's cool is that you're playing against I, not AI. Right. And so that, that yeah. part is also can be compelling uh, in that, you know, if you really are playing against another human being who has intelligence, that's a, a completely different layer than, you know, some algorithm that you're trying to figure out how to um, uh, outwit. Mm. Um, sure. Um, just taking you sideways slightly and, and, and slightly just to rewind the tape. Um, we were particularly interested in a project you were part of in 2012. Um, Innovative Leisure brought together the old team from Atari Coinop, including yourself, Dennis Coble, Owen Rubin, and uh, Et Rotberg to uh to to develop mobile games and it, it you know it sounded perfect on paper what happened there you know have i, have I touched uh touched the nerve perhaps no you haven't it's it, it it's fine it's you know it's all you know part of my life so uh it's all fair game okay um fine what happened um we raised a lot of money okay and um we had a quite a number of projects um that were underway um and um, we ended up choosing one at the very end that would be our lead product. And, you know, uh, Seamus Blackley, the, the founder of the company, um, is a very brilliant person, a very complex person. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so his, and he's extremely well connected. Yes, um, of course. Yeah. So, you know, we had an opportunity to partner with a exceptionally large social media company uh, to get distribution. And um, we, it was again, a Darwinian thing yep. where it's like, here you go, let's go live. Let's see how the market responds. And I'll tell you, it was mind boggling to me to look at the way that uh, the market responded in you know, you could see in seconds how, you know, once it became live, all of a sudden the needle started to move. And I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. I just like, I was thinking, well, maybe there's a few days. And it's like, no, it's minutes, you know? And so, but I think at the end of the day, the the game that we ended up um, putting out there didn't quite make what the executives uh, want. And so they ended up not succeeding and then, or they ended up passing on being distribution. Um, and I, you know, I don't even know how much they're, even if they have that division anymore. I mean, they've got Oculus now, but uh, I'm not even sure they're doing anything in game distribution. They looked at Candy Crush, which is, you know, sort of the Megillah at the time. And they were going like, 
how do we leverage this Candy Crush thing? Because I think they were making money, some of the money that King was making. And so they wanted a piece of the, they wanted a bigger piece of the pie. And, yeah, one would uh, think, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Um, you know, what happened is, you know, we took a swing and we didn't quite get a hit. Sure, 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 sure. And and you know, taking you back even further, just just do you do you think the death of the arcades as we knew them to be um, w- was inevitable? W- what are, what are your thoughts looking back at this remove? I, I mean, inevitable, maybe. Look, we're still in a novelty business, so arcades were a novelty, and so that has a shelf life. Yeah, sure, you know, sure. novelty is not a novelty perpetually. So yeah, you have to either continue to innovate or not. You know, there's still Dave and Buster's is still trying to get things done. You know, we tried to do some things along those lines at Silicon Entertainment and and do location based gaming, um, and so it's you know, is it inevitable? I mean, it was inevitable that it wasn't going to be a novelty anymore. Did were, were, were people able to compete in terms of being able to build machines in a cost-effective way that would allow people to pony up for more than a quarter? Because a quarter was, you know, it was pretty hard to breaking, going from a quarter to 50 cents is 2x. Mm. It's kind of a hard jump, you know? So there's a lot of things that were sort of in the way, but I wouldn't say it's inevitable. If somebody was bright enough to come up with something compelling that was worth your dollar or worth your $5 or your $10, they, people are social animals. So they want to find a way to, to get together. And so it's still possible that, you know, in some fashion could have done it. I mean, top golf is something in that realm. Yeah, I have to say, um, I mean, I have family in in, in Miami and we're aiming to go over there during Christmas. And I do go to Dave and Buster's over there and and Chuck E. Cheese. And Mm -hmm. I still kind of gravitate towards, I mean, you know, the, the food is pretty awful these days but um i still go there and uh, and check out what's new I, I tend to gravitate uh sadly enough to like the arcade versions of uh, angry birds and um <laughs> and and doodle jump of, of all things but i find that things like that you know the simple stuff still works and still take i, I will happily pump like 10 10 into into doodle jump and 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 things of that nature richie i think um chucky e. cheese has gone into receivership are you going to be okay <laughs> are you going to be all right mate has it are you I don't want. Is, it, is, is, is that true? Is that true? Yeah, I think I talked to Nolan last month, and he said, "Yeah." So yeah, apparently. Well, that's probably not surprising, actually, given what's gone off. Given those shit doodles, jump games, yeah, probably. It. <laughs> uh, Rich, have you checked out any of the you know these modern retro arcades that are doing well? You know, within their within their own little remit. I mean, I, have you have you been to these places? Yeah, I've I've been to. Uh, you're talking about the Dave and Buster's of the world, or well, know? more 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 like Galloping Ghosts and oh, uh, the American Classic Arcade Museum and um and and, and conventions like Free Play Florida where people. Bring their games yeah, in. Yeah, not. Uh, I, I haven't really been to any of the uh, sort of you know uh, any of that class of of, of arcade um, to to see them. I mean, I, I do you see do you see value in it in, in it at all? Is it or is it just not your thing? No, I, I mean it would be my thing. It's just I'm not really. I wouldn't make a dedicated trip to do it. You know, okay. but um, in terms of you know uh, maintaining you know the historical documents. From the past, uh, yeah, I, I can see value in that is in keeping 
you know, those things alive and, and putting them in front of, you know, young players who would never seen them. That part is good, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't really chased those down. I think I went to a classic gaming expo thing a couple, three years ago, but that's as close as I've come. Yeah, sure. And w- what about yourself? I mean, you obviously back in the day, you had a, you had a missile command prototype, but do, do you actually have anything else at home, Rich? I'm looking, I'm looking at a Gravatar and a Tempest. I haven't turned them on in a while, but, and their XY monitors probably are failing so well that's that's that that's inevitable and and just you know looking back at your time at atari rich um i mean these were formative formative years and and what what's your abiding memory of your of your time at atari over and above what we've already discussed you know on this, on this um I, I think the greatest sort of overarching memories were just how much fun we had uh doing our work yeah i mean we uh we worked hard we partied hard i mean we were we got away with things that oh my i can't even imagine hot tubs how... tell us about hot tubs Rich. I, knew, I, knew, I knew that was coming you've opened the can there Rich. Yeah. did you ever <laughs> did you ever sit in nolan's hot tub i'm gonna ask the question uh the answer to that question is yes. Yes, alas! We found them all this time. We can close early. So go, who else was in there, Rich? Name names. Oh, now now, now you've gone beyond. <laughs> Rich was there and... Uh, you can only speak for yourself. Yeah. You you are the first of all the people we've asked this question to. Everyone's kind of alluded to it, yeah. but no one's actually admitted to actually sitting in it. Um, well, I'm, I'm at the end of the day, a jacuzzi's at the end of the day, a jacuzzi is just a jacuzzi. I mean, no, unless no, Rich no, no. cares Rich, to elaborate Rich, upon this. Richie um, May, yeah. it's not. It's Nolan. <laughs> it was a redwood. It was a redwood hot tub. Thank you, thank you. And was it a pleasurable experience? Did you have big cigars? No, there was no. There were no cigars. There was probably beer drinking, and let's just leave it there. Rich, what, what, just to, just to close up on this, what keeps you occupied these days, Rich? What's, uh, what are you working on at the moment? What are you doing? Well, um, I, my, my contract with Activision uh, was up in February. And so I have been working on Rich for the last, you know, seven, eight months. So I... How's Rich working out for you, Rich? I wish he would get better in a whole lot faster. (laughs) That's not going to happen, is it? I've been playing golf and I do have, you know, we have five acres here and I have um, about 70 grapes in the ground down (laughs) at the bottom of the hill and I've been making wine and and such. So um, I, I know how to make... I know I can make mediocre wine. I, I would like to be able to do surpass that. So okay, okay, superb, Rich. It's been um, it's. I mean, we say this a lot, but it, it's been it's been an honor. It's been lots of fun listening to you um, to your anecdotes, and uh, it's been a privilege to to have you on the podcast. So I, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much for agreeing to speak with us. Sure, happy to do it, Rich. What fascinating tales! Thank you for all those insights, and I just love that image of you walking out of the Sente offices with a sort of a plastic D&D sword by your side. <laughs> I think. Lovely image. And you know, when you get the first, uh, you know, vintage Adam wine, then please, please do invite us over to uh, to have a little. We'd love that. Be happy to. Uh, Rich, We I, I make a terrible habit of saying this has been the best podcast we've done so so far, but I genuinely do think this is the best podcast we've done so, so far. Um, <laughs> fascinating tales I, i've learned things that i thought i already knew but clearly i didn't 
and um, knowing that we finally spoken to someone who's sat in Nolan Bushnell's hot tub, my so gra- happy, my grever, so happy. The guy, the guy spends an hour and a half talking about his time at Atari, and that the takeaway is, did you sit in Nolan's hot tub? I mean, I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> my gravatar can fall on me this evening, and I will die a happy man. Okay, but um, thank you, Rich. I, the first thing I'm going to do when we uh, say goodbye is I am going to try out God mode on my gravatar because I need it for sure good um thank you rich Th- thanks very much for your time uh, i enjoyed it very much thank you you've been listening to the ted dabney experience podcast with me richard may retro gamer magazine's paul drury and arcade blogger tony temple the show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by ghost of wood additional technical support by jason arbor Thank you.